Undisciplinary is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wadarong peoples of the Kulin Nation in Geelong and the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation in Sydney. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. The world's first heart transplant has been performed. Medical history has been made in South Africa. New faces everywhere Welcome to Undisciplinary, a podcast where we're talking across the boundaries of history, ethics and the politics of health, co-hosted by Chris Mays and Jane Williams. Welcome uh, to another episode of Undisciplinary. Uh, Jane, how are you today? I am cold but well, thank you, Chris. You? Yes, it is. well, it's cold but sort of a little bit sunny down here in uh, Geelong. Um, and I guess, you know, by way of trying to make up a segue, <laughs> this is, uh, you know, thinking about the weather and thinking about the environment is something that we're going to be talking about today. And I think you know, I've been really looking forward to um, having this conversation and talking with the guest that we have and we'll introduce in a moment. But I think, you know, for this podcast where we primarily have been talking about um, health uh, in a very specific sort of biomedical way, even if I think we sort of are critical or, or wanting to have more expansive understandings of health and disease and experiences of illness and the like, um, most of the conversations occur in and around clinical spaces. Did you say that's fair? I think that's relatively mm. fair. Um, but today, uh, we're hoping to have a conversation um, around some themes to do with life uh, more broadly conceived and well-being. Um, and and to do that, we uh, have uh, guest uh, Dr. Uh, Elder Belthrop Lewis, who will be um, talking with us uh, about some of her work on uh, Thoreau. Um, and uh, uh, looking forward to that. But uh, first, perhaps, Jane, would you like to introduce Elder? Sure. <laughs> so, Elder is a research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University. Her research focuses on religious environmental ethics and the circulation of ideas among theological, artistic and popular idioms. Her first book, Thoreau's Religion, Walden Woods, Social Justice and the Politics of Asceticism, uh, was published last year by Cambridge University Press and it treats Henry David Thoreau as an inheritor of traditional ascetic practices and argues that his asceticism is politically relevant both in his period and for contemporary uh, environmental ethics. Uh, Elder has a particular interest in the role of the emotions in environmental politics and the way that the concepts of religion and politics are related to theological histories of gender, race, nature, and nation. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to get to talk to you about a wider sense of health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and most likely not just uh, that. Um, and, and something that, uh, you know, knowing your some of your work um, and the approach that you bring uh, to, I guess, studies of uh, religion and environmental ethics, you do, like many of the guests who we 
bring on here have a sort of uncomfortable, perhaps uh, disciplinary home. Um, and literature and philosophy are also things that you uh, engage with. So it'd be interesting, I guess, just first to just to hear more from you about um, your disciplinary and cross-disciplinary um, background and part of the uh, story to where you are now. Yeah, great. I um I love the title of this podcast for that reason. Um, and I'm so inspired by the sort of question and conversations that it opens up, partly because so my PhD was in religious studies in the United States. And um that discipline, as it is there, has a particular history in that national context. Um, but it it's it's interdisciplinary in itself, in a way, um, in that scholars in that field, religious studies are gathered around an object rather than together through a method. And in that way, it's not that different formally from literature or law or politics um, in, this, in this formal sense that we, we look at an, a controversial object together and we use whatever methods seem important for that purpose. Um, as, as you were saying, my own sort of focus in that very, um, fluid disciplinary context has been in the study of ethics and especially through the study of philosophy and literature. But um, there's also in religious ethics, which is a sort of subfield of that discipline in that context. Um, there from the early 2000s was what they called a cultural turn where methods from sociology and anthropology were important for the way people were thinking about what, what ethical inquiry is. Um, so, so even within that small subfield, this, this question about what discipline, what methods are required in order to study the object that we're invested in has been really live and um, quite interesting. Mm. That's some of um, my background about that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. No, thanks. Uh, I think I like that idea of sort of having an object of inquiry mm. that um, brings people together uh, rather than yeah, specific discipline as the object or, or the, the container of the thought. Um, it really, I mean, one of the things that's fun about religious studies is that, of course, what religion is, is mm. the most controversial topic in the discipline. Um, but I think any conversation around an object is going to have that. And that was one of the things I was thinking about as I was thinking about talking to you today was the way in which health and well-being, like you're sort of taking those categories as these kind of controversial objects that there have been lots of different ways of thinking about, and there will be lots of different ways of thinking about. And one of the things that's really interesting is to just look at them and how they're constituted in different settings and through different discourses and all that kind of thing. I, I really admire that work. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, that's uh, something I guess we're going to hopefully do from a different perspective today in looking at uh, health and well-being. And I, and I suppose to start off with, though, um, your work on Henry David Thoreau. And when I was doing the introduction, for some reason, I completely blanked on what his first names were and just thought Thoreau, Thoreau, Thoreau. He's like Aristotle, <laughs> you know, what's his uh, Bob, just Bob Aristotle. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the... Well, I mean, it's interesting you say there is just one, um, it, but there also seems to be many different throws. Uh, and, and I guess a lot of like people that I was thinking about, um, you know, uh, Marx, I guess, that people may not necessarily have read 
a lot or any of Marx, but they'll have an opinion about him, <clears throat> or at least a caricature of what he's on about. And it seems with Thoreau is quite similar. Um, and that, um, you know, a lot of people, I guess, know of Thoreau through popular representations. I'm, uh, for me, I think something like Dead Poet Society was uh, very formative. <laughs> In a, in a lot of different ways, not all good ways, but particularly for that idea of, you know, here's this young man going off into the woods to live intentionally to suck out the, you know, marrow from the bone of life, although he probably wouldn't have been doing that as a vegetarian, but um, uh, and I guess your work uh, and your, your recent book, Thoreau's Religion, uh, Walden, Social Justice and the Politics of Asceticism, is trying to tease apart some of these different throws, uh, I suppose, um, and, and it would be interesting to hear from you to map out these different interpretations, like you talk about um, the sort of white environmentalists. Um, I guess there are also some libertarian throws maybe uh, out there. Um, and so it'd be interesting to hear from you um, on some of these different interpretations and why you have felt it's important to sort of challenge and contextualize these different interpretations of Thoreau. Yeah, one of the ways the book is sort of set up is through an idea about two Thoreaus, which is actually quite an old idea. Um, one of his early biographers said that he wrote a biography in order to figure out how Thoreau could have these two identities. And the two identities that early biographer identified were the sort of um, naturalist who lived in the woods and the abolitionist activist who um, gave a really impassioned speech defending John Brown, um, who was a guerrilla fighter against slavery in the United States, trying to lead an, uh, an uprising that would overcome slavery. Um, and I mean, on the one hand, a lot of the 20th century reception of Thoreau's writings came in the United States context, in, in contexts that were constituted by white supremacist ideology, which is to say the idea that developed alongside European colonialism that white people are somehow better than other people. And that idea, of course, led to a really wide variety of practices um, that included maybe most famously in the earliest 20th century in the United States Jim Crow segregation, but like lots of other obviously legal economic and social practices that granted advantages to white people on this premise that like they're better than other people. So a lot of the 20th century interpretation of Thoreau just happened in that context among scholars who lived in that water. Um, and I came to believe that that context was one of the reasons that some of Thoreau's politics got um, erased from interpretations of Walton. Because of course, there was another strand of 20th century interpretations. This is the second Thoreau in the 20th century in which um, Thoreau's thought was used by people trying to lead liberation movements against white supremacist forces, including Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. And um, I, I wanted there to be an interpretation of Walden that made sense of the fact that those two people, the one who had been interpreted in this um, uh, naturalist sense that sort of isolated him from wider political forms, 
and the one that had been deployed by these movements against forces of white supremacy? Like, how were they the same person? And, and what does it look like if we read Walden um, with all of that in mind? Mm. Yeah, I mean, because it's interesting to me, the his writings on civil disobedience and this sort of connection with um, anti-slavery um, politics. And then is it like, is there a myth of the myth as well? Like, like without getting too meta, because I was um, remind, like in, in preparing for this, I was reminded, I think it must have been around his 200th birthday, which was five years ago. So it must be um, his 205th birthday. There are significant celebrations for that. But anyway, there were all these articles I remember, like um, in the New York Times and different things, talking about the myth of Thoreau as that solitary figure going out. But it seems you would kind of have to have not really read any of him to actually hold that as the myth. And so it's it's kind of like, does the myth of, for, I keep on wanting to say Foucault, it's a Freudian <laughs> thing, but it does holding the myth of Thoreau almost is it its own kind of industry really to then cut down the myth, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. And at the same time, there are a lot of people who, as you say, I mean, I forget who the author was who um, I was just reading this morning, who wrote an essay in which he said that Thoreau was at risk of becoming like the Bible, the most cited, least read yeah. um, sort of author. Um, mm. And and so, as you say, um, there's the myth of the myth, and then there's the myth of the myth of the myth of the myth. There's like this whole social practice around it. And so depending on what context you're in, people are just going to have really, really different understandings and points of view. And I think I, my book does run on on a little bit of the industry of the myth of the myth, um, because among scholars of throw, nothing that I say in my book is particularly um, new. I mean, the intervention, the, the sort of disciplinary intervention I make in Thoreau studies is to use religion as a critical category with which to offer this synthetic interpretation of Walden. And no one's done that before. So fine. I did that intervention. But the, but the undercutting of the myth of Thoreau is not news to the Thoreau scholars. So, um, but then there are other cultural contexts where it really does matter, you know, and, and I, I think the place, the thing I was writing for, the purpose I I took as mine was to say to some white environmentalists who still don't see the ways environmentalism can reinstantiate racial and economic discrimination, that their environmentalism has to change. And it was a weird way to try to do that. But if, if they care about Thoreau and they see this book, they might, they might, find a new way of looking at it. And that was the hope I kind of had about, about who it might touch. Hmm. Um, by the way, Jane, feel free to jump <laughs> in if, if you want, but I also- so I'm, I'm gonna sort of out myself at this point and say, I've never read Thoreau. Yeah. And it's a, but I have been to Walden Pond and I did engage 20 years ago quite, um, quite deeply with what I thought Thoreau might be about without actually reading anything that he wrote. Just, you know. Yeah, what was that like? Like what did did that look like? Um, So I was living nearby at the time 
Um, and I was uh, having some health issues, actually. And I thought, I wonder what it would be to go to the place where somebody had what must have been a particularly difficult time and where I imagine that he found a degree of joy, hopefully a good degree of joy, <laughs> um, in that environment. And a harsh environment was winter when I went, um, which brings us back to our introduction about it being cold. Nice segue. Um, I, I really enjoyed being there, actually, and I, it made me think about what it is we need to live and all of those sorts of things. So Thoreau was a bit of an um, enabler for a moment that I wanted and needed some sort of catalyst <laughs> to enable, I suppose. So uh, I, the myth, so it's interesting talking about, you know, the myth of Thoreau, because I think that um, that myth does reach people. Yeah, it's amazing. Who knows how that happens? It's wild. I um, think probably um, in Massachusetts, it's probably a, um, a more, sort of a fairly common cultural trope, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, I mean, that then does bring us, well, I guess, I guess before it'd be good to, before going sort of into the, the health and wellbeing side of things, to know, like you mentioned, you know, part of the hope and the aim of the book were for um, uh, environmentalists who perhaps um, don't, aren't aware of the way that the, I guess, the goodness of their uh, intentions and their projects can reinscribe um, racism and other forms of um, oppression and and your uh, hope to sort of use and, and point to these sort of complex cities within Thoreau to draw attention to some of that. Um, but, yeah, it'd be good to hear a little more about, um, you know, in the one hand, his life being at the sort of, I guess, beginning of a lot of industrial um, developments. Um, I think he talks about sort of the, the railways as being sort of one of the sort of new uh, improvements of, um, you, know, I, you know, I don't think he's meaning that necessarily in a normative sense, but, you know, just one of the new expansions of um, modern technologies into our lives um, or his life. Um, but that also seems pretty remote in some ways to to our current situation where we are um i guess seeing the things in terms of environmental degradation um that he was concerned uh by the i guess the early the early seeds of that we are we are bearing those um uh more bitter fruits to continue the metaphor um but yeah i guess you know what lessons do you think we can draw from throw uh, for environmental justice and, and politics today um considering that i guess there are some of these same dynamics of people seeing a withdrawal as the the only sort of way out whether that's an off the grid kind of withdrawal or um maybe even more of a just a psychic withdrawal of of not wanting to just think about or participate in um dealing with these challenges so the first thing to say is that i think 
contemporary movements for environmental justice are so important. And one of the things I say at the beginning of the book that I wrote about Thoreau is like, he's not the guy who invented that idea. He, he, um, he was an abolitionist and he cared about nature, but he didn't have the context that that environmental justice movements came out of in the United States. You know, that was in the 80s, a sort of emergence out of the civil rights movement where black communities figured out, realized that in, they were suffering worse environmental impacts than white communities. And that, that um, uh, the people who made that movement real were Democrats, citizens who did hard political labor. It wasn't throw. That's important to say because we should give them the credit they deserve for the work that they did. Um, I guess the the point I wanted to get across in the book was that Thoreau saw natural piety of the kind he was famous for in Walden and labor justice of the kind he was advocating for both people enslaved in the South and Northern industrial laborers as um, deeply intertwined in a kind of wider vision of what I call in the subtitle of the book, social justice. Um, one of the reviewers said it was an explosively expansive account of social justice. So it's like, um, and now there's people doing really interesting work on multi-species justice, right? It's this idea that like, if we're gonna actually take seriously the fact that people belong to our communities who are not humans, maybe we don't call them people, whatever. We have communities full of all kinds of beings and we owe duties of justice to those beings. And the fact that human communities are particularly bad at finding justice among themselves. If we're gonna deal with both of those things together, I mean, we have to deal with both of those things together if we're gonna have any meaningful justice because all of those members um, matter. Hmm. And so I guess um, one of the things about contemporary climate change stuff is just that the economic transitions that are required um, have to be, if we're gonna do this explosively expansive account of social justice, have to be managed equitably. And so that's why climate and inequality have to be dual targets. Like we can't just do one and not the other. We have to like really focus on the fact that inequality is a huge problem in contemporary international politics and within wealthy countries. And uh, we can't address climate without addressing that broader context of economic inequality. That's one of the things I like to get on my soapbox and say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, um, and I think, you know, maybe another way of um, thinking about justice um, which ties in with um, a name of your book and, and sort of an interest that we have here um, around well-being, I guess, um, as, you know, what is um, what is it for a, a community or a, a group of people to sort of live well together? Um, and obviously justice, um, you know, is a different concept to that and I'm not suggesting they're synonymous but I think there is a relationship there and um, you, you say that you know an aim of the book is to make Thoreau an ally of frontline communities that are fighting for their well-being um, and it seems that he does provide that avenue as well for that multi-species um, uh, dimension um, in, in some ways in the way that he sort of interacts with his um, it, uh, trees and um, birds and uh, the life around him. Um, 
but it would be yeah interesting to hear a bit more about this idea of well-being for Thoreau, particularly, I guess, in connection to, you know, we've talked around it a little bit, but something that I guess it hasn't just, and maybe this is just to jump back to that whole idea of the myth of Thoreau, um, is maybe it's not just his words, so people may not have read their words, but have heard about his life and the things that he's actually done. Um, uh, and so that sort of ascetic side, I guess, and its connection to his well-being um, and um, and your work on that would be interesting to hear a bit more. Yeah, this is where I'm going to look at my notes for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to take the opportunity to chuck in a question, which we might want to come back to. But I was just thinking about the multi-species. Um, go ahead and read your notes as well. Um, just thinking about the multi-species justice thing and thinking about how in New Zealand um, the Whanganui River was granted personhood, right? Does it? What does that mean for multi-species, right, if we need to grant something personhood in order to protect it or in order to kind of raise its status to the, to the degree that, I mean, because that, that was seen as a huge win, right, and it is a huge win, um, acknowledging the importance of of a thing in the environment that is not human or animal, um, even though it nurtures a lot of humans and animals. Um, you know, that I feel like that was seen as a big win, but also maybe it's not if we're thinking about multi-species justice. So that's something we could come back to as well. <laughs> I'm really interested in, in those, especially I've been reading about the river stuff because of I just learned that um, – the Yara was uh, granted a voice in the Victorian parliament in 2017. And I mm -hmm. live like four blocks away and I didn't find out until this year. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been reading a bunch of the le critical legal people who have been working on that. Someone who's a member of the Beerung council, which is the voice of the Yara in the Victorian parliament. That's a purposefully bicultural council that has representation from um, Wurundjeri uh, people and other experts um, in order to represent the interests of the Yara in the parliament. And there is controversy, really interesting controversy among the critical legal theorists about, especially, let me see if I can remember this right, whether the tools that rights provide are the kind of thing that we want to use because of the, you know, really important criticisms of human rights frameworks and the question of whether those frameworks um, offer a vision of um, flourishing together that's, that can be separated from the individuation that rights frameworks require. Um, and that's just a really, really interesting conversation because, in fact, granting rights to rivers is getting wins for both often, in a lot of cases, indigenous land management and environmental aims. And uh, at the same time, I mean, it's this crazy thing that happens, right? Where <laughs> I've been thinking because I, I um, because of this thing about the R and something I was trying to write about it. Um, like the human rights framework came out of this 
expansionist, colonialist, democratic project. And that's why people turn against it. But right at the moment that like all the critical university people are turning against human rights, there's these whole collection of indigenous groups that are actually practically getting more management opportunities by having learned how to deploy the tools of the state that have been oppressing them. And so like, you know, you're nodding and you get it. I am. It's a perfect response. <laughs> yeah. It's really complicated. And yeah. I do think just about the thing, the other point I took you to be making was that multi-species still takes species as supremacist. And there's a question about how, how other beings exist in our world. And I think that, that Thoreau's stuff about the pond is really interesting on this. And um, there, there are some other moments where, um, oh, I wish I had the quote. Find it easily. One of his friends who wrote about him soon after he died said something like, just where the limits of consciousness ended, he was too wise and hopeful to say. And in the context of what his friend wrote, and sort of like, you could just take it that he thought animals might have consciousness, but I think there's something more in it. There's like this vibrant matter kind of direction and that those new materialists, some of like Jane Bennett, who wrote the book, Vibrant Matter, um, is a Thoreauvian through and through. Um, and so it's, it's like a, that kind of new materialism, I sometimes think and there's other examples of this, Bronca Arsic, and um, is like a flowering of this Thoreauvian moment. Hmm. So I, you asked me to think about well-being and health and throw. And one of the things I got interested in, so you know, I'm I, I'm keen on this idea um, that it's a really I guess it's the genealogical idea that like categories have a history and it's good to know that history. So I was like, I've never thought about that, about well-being. I mean, you, you point to this place where I use it in the book, totally naively, you know, without any attention to the kind of things you guys are working on. And, um, and so what I do when I realize I've done that with the category is like, go back and look for it in the, in the books that I'm reading. So I went back in Walden and there's no well-being in Walden. Uh, there is well-employed, well-off, well-clad, and then I think vitally for us, a well-man versus a sick man. So the, that's the sense in which it's used with respect to health. It's like you can be well or sick. Um, and Thoreau has these moments where he's like pretty contrary about what other people around him, totally in character. I mean, he's contrary about everything, but he's also contrary about what people's ideas are at the time about how to cultivate, he doesn't say wellness, mm -hmm. how, how to be a well man. Yeah. Um, and 
uh, one of these places is so interesting where he says, what is the pill which will keep us well, serene, contented? And he's like, no, not the quack vials of a mixture, but instead the morning air. Give me a draft of the morning air, he says. So he's like, God in mind, I think, just wellness ideology of his own period, like the way people thought about being well and being sick. And in fact, um, uh, as you pointed out in the notes, he became sick. He, he was sick himself and um, for a lot of his life. And there's this interesting, which I looked up in preparation for talking to you about this. There's this interesting dispute because in his period, he, one thing he says in Walden is that some of his friends acted like he went to the woods on purpose to freeze himself. Hmm. And he says, that's not right. I wasn't trying to freeze myself, but, but they did apparently sometimes think that he had developed um, sort of respiratory issues and, and people thought that he made them worse by spending time in the outdoors, uh, that it, that a cold would settle on your lungs and then that would lead to all these respiratory conditions that were tuberculosis, which was the thing people died of. It was the leading cause of death in his period. Um, uh, but people had this idea that a cold would settle on your lungs if you spend too much time in the cold. But then by, this is the amazing thing I learned today. By 1908, there's a physician who's a total enthusiast and made Thoreau a hero of what was then called the outdoor cure because by then people were saying that if you had these respiratory conditions, it was important to spend a lot of time outside. And then in 2016, uh, the journal Emerging Infectious Diseases said that his active lifestyle and love of the outdoors had helped him to live so long with tuberculosis. So his, his own life is, is like a, a kind of fascinating microcosm of like, the way our ideas about health and well-being shift uh, are like, you know, are transformed by our cultural context. And then also he, he was conscious of it at the time. Like he wrote about it in Walden. He was making fun of people who thought that the quack vials of a mixture could make them well when, when he didn't think that they could. And, um, and he's always using multivalent, using words in a multivalent sense. And especially these kinds of things about health, I think. So one concern he has is that people might be using a kind of narrow biological sense. Mm. And he's quite interested in what he calls spiritual, a spiritual sense. So um, what's the place I saw this? Anyway, yeah, I'm sure you have lots of ideas. I've been talking too long. <laughs> <laughs> that was really interesting thinking about him in his little room, cottage hut. I don't know what we call it. Um, uh, called it a and, house. Oh, a house. It's quite wee though. It's quite small. <laughs> um, that as a as a kind of sanatorium model, I suppose that that came in. I don't know when, but the idea that you would wheel uh, TB patients outside to take the airs, you know, for for the afternoon, and then presumably tuck them up when it got too cold. <laughs> you know, I feel like hopefully he had a roaring fire going or something like that. <laughs> Um, 
But it also feels like a lot of the advice that we get today, right? So people who are particularly successful in life write things in the paper about how they get up at 5.30 and, and I don't know, meditate for half an hour and then go for a run, you know, run 10Ks and then come home and have their, I don't know, soaked granola that they did the night before or something. It's, it's not dissimilar in terms of living in a way that is not necessarily easy um, to promote a sort of wellness that takes effort um, and that and the, the, the kind of moral, and again, <laughs> haven't read Thoreau, but the, the folks who write about their lifestyles in the Sydney Morning Herald feels like there's a sort of moral, uh, a little bit of a moral high ground, I guess, that comes from living that way. And so they're well because they deserve it. Um, it sounds like that wasn't necessarily Thoreau's um, vibe, given that his friends were were um, saying that he, he might have let the cold settle in his lungs. But um, it, yeah, it's kind of really similar and, and also not perhaps. Yeah, I I also am sometimes turned off by this kind of thing. Um, and there are people who read Thoreau in this way and just hate it. Right. Um, I I don't. In part because, it, um, I mean, Walden's just a really big book, so it's hard to read it any one way. It's purposefully contradictory. Um, and also because in the beginning, I mean, he says these things that I take really seriously to heart, things like, if this this is what I tried to report on an experiment because people asked, um, and if a, if the coat doesn't fit you, don't put it on because you might stretch the seams and then it won't fit someone else who it's made for. So, so he's really got this kind of purposefully, um, uh, what's the word? He doesn't think that he knows what everyone should do. Mm. Yeah, it would seem, I, I guess I, I do, I'm sort of wanting to rush to the dessert of this conversation, but we'll hold up, which is, as just a foretaste, uh, you know, the wellness culture, it, it does that, that flexibility or, you know, seeing that everyone has their own individual well, not, he's not saying this, but, you know, this is me paraphrasing kind of what you're just saying. It's not a Jordan Peterson 12, <laughs> 12 rules to live in. Like these are the 12 things everyone has to do. Um, but 12 rules and two foods. It would seem that some people try to interpret. Oh, one. Him, one of them's salt. I've never heard salt. of that. Oh, he only eats meat and salt. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um. But we'll get into that later. Perhaps we could get one, Chris. Kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's lots of. Look, I'll just jump into this. Um, that was really interesting what you were saying, um, Elder, about your uh, looking at those different periods. I guess of the way that um, in 1908 he was sort of being vindicated for this, and I and I wonder as well whether that's perhaps, you know, in terms of the history of public health and seeing particularly around with the growth of cities and the um, hygiene practices and the lack of windows and ventilation was seen as a big problem with a lot of, you know, you've got, you know, poor ventilation and a coal fire in your, um, 
living room and people were getting a lot of respiratory things. So this idea of going out and um, breathing in and, and it's kind of like a, a double irony or a double vindication of um, Thoreau perhaps of both the acceleration of um, modern progress um, as well as the outdoor living. Um, and then, yeah, again, in the, the 2000s, this um, uh, recognition of the outdoor lifestyle um, and, and putting it into those sort of lifestyle terms. Um, but something that I was um, looking at since sort of sending you uh, some of the questions we were going to ask, I, I sort of um, got myself into some research on Google. <laughs> but um, the way that I think that... <laughs> Firstly, I guess just a straight up question is I haven't found much that has written on, say, you know, you've done this sort of environmental um, aspect of Thoreau, but I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff around health um, for, for to be sort of unpacked and explored, particularly his relationship to homeopathy um, and the way that, so you mentioned that quote where he talks about the quacks and the pills and I think there's sort of two things at least to sort of unpick around him and homeopathy. One, I think needing to sort of have a understanding of the state of medicine at the time that he was living. And so that the, the lines between homeopathy, quacks, quote unquote, legitimate medicine were a lot more blurred than perhaps we think of them today. So the pills were very unpredictable in what they were going to be doing. Um, but I have seen that a number of homeopathists today do very much include Thoreau as part of their sort of lineage. And this comes out in the, the idea um, that he sort of re repeats a, a number of different points about vital heat. And it talks about vital heat and the relationship to fires and the sun and all of this sort of stuff, which homeopathists have adopted, um, but goes back to the ancient Greeks and particularly Aristotle talks about um, vital heat in um, Dianema um, and, and that vital heat comes from um, food and nutrition, but primarily from the heart and that it's when the heart gets cold, that's when you're in danger. So he was probably okay if his lungs were getting cold, like in terms of his medical schema, he'd be like, as long as my heart's not, if my heart is full and, and, and warm and I'm having the right kind of food, because through the food and the digestion is what then makes the, the blood and the, the heart fire, then he'd be okay. But yeah, there's... Uh, the more I've been looking into this, it's, it's, it is a very fascinating, um, is the different sort of historical moments in, I guess, medicine and health that he's sort of at the intersections of. And, the, and at the same time, while he's seemingly very attracted to these homeopathic ideas or humor, humorial understandings of health and illness, like balancing out the humours, from what I understand, he was also quite... Um, up to date with the latest sort of new, like he was reading Charles Darwin and people like that um, and and very interested in that. So, so it would have been interesting had he lived for another 20 or 30 years to see where his sort of thoughts on things like health and wellbeing would have gone. Yeah, I, I to, um, to find out what medical ideas he was in descent from, 
and which ones he was contributing to. I, I like, I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know that history of medicine well enough. Um, it's totally fascinating. And the thing about food, I was looking, I was thinking about because he's, he's definitely in dissent about what food is required. Um, I learned from two years experience that it would cost incredibly little to trouble. No, it would cost incredibly little trouble to obtain one's necessary food, even in this latitude that a man may use as simple a diet as the animals and yet retain health and strength. I have made a satisfactory dinner, satisfactory on several accounts, simply off a dish of purslane, which I gathered in my cornfield, boiled and salted. And, and as you say, I mean, some of his friends thought he, he had these respiratory illnesses because he didn't eat meat. Um, but he was emphatic that, that you could live well without eating animals. Mm. And that was quite controversial. Mm. <clears throat> and the idea that you... Uh, th- the other idea that I think is connected with um, this is this idea of necessity and and I guess his the relationship between necessity and luxury um, and seeing him seeing, I guess, luxury and luxuriance and excess as undermining, you know, health or well-being or, or, or flourishing or living well and and not seeing sort of what's necessary as um as a uh, a frugal thing necessary or frugal in a bad sense i think you know we talk about the bare necessities as a sort of a meager thing but it seems that he sort of saw that as why would you want to go more would you i don't know if there's another sort of aristotelian sort of virtue sense to that as well that it's sort of you don't want too little or too much you just want what's needed yeah, there are definitely places where he thinks excess is harmful. He says that thing about um, luxury is not only good for you, but it's a hindrance. So he, he thinks it gets in your way, luxury. Um, but I read, I mean, one of the things, so my book is focused on asceticism as a religious category and the ways in which he's drawing on much longer histories, traditions of these kinds of ascetic practices. And I'm inclined to read him in most of those places as speaking out of the economic contexts that he's worried about. So I'm not sure that he thinks excess is bad for you in a kind of biological way. Hmm. I think he knows that wealth is a problem in a lot of economies in that it's usually earned by way of injustice. And he thinks that in order for you to be well, like spiritually healthful, you, you have to find a way to resist that injustice. Um, and I, I, that's the, one of, one of the things the books, the book tries to do is to interpret his asceticism as in dissent from unjust economic practices like slavery. So he's asking, people lived in Walden in the generation before him who had been enslaved and conquered. So when he goes to Walden, it's not a wilderness. It's a place that had been inhabited by humans, humans who had made a really courageous decision to try to live independently and not in lives of service. And so he's the generation after this. And he's like, what would a society look like that doesn't rely on slavery for labor? How would we have to live? What would our lives be like? 
if we weren't enslaving other people? He wanted to find out. Hmm. He thought, if I do the labor my own life requires, that might teach me something about what a society would look like that didn't rely on enslavement. Hmm. And so I think that in a lot of these, like if you take that point of view on his asceticism, there are a lot of places where you can kind of get behind what might otherwise seem sort of preachy mm -hmm. because, but because what he's saying is you need to think about the difference between luxury and necessity because a lot of the luxuries you enjoy are obtained on the backs of other people. That's another soapbox I like to get on. <laughs> no, that makes sense. The, the, that makes the, the meal of porcelain make more sense at least, doesn't it? It's, um, it takes on a certain appeal. <laughs> but uh, is this also um, that, that economic framing, is this also a, a problem, whether it's, I guess it's a problem, well, let's call it a problem, of the way Thoreau is received in that and and you i think this was in your interview with meredith lake which i'll uh, put as a link up and with the various other links to your work but um you you talk about teaching this book and at walden being the book <laughs> um and with the first you know significant chapters being about sort of economy and they sort of more turgid um i don't i don't think i was um reading them this morning uh, actually while we're sort of in a confessional mode in a um i, I think in a very unthoroian way i had it on uh i was an audio book at double speed while i was doing other <laughs> chores <laughs> which i was thinking yeah i'm pretty sure Thoreau wouldn't like this but anyway um but in that in those first chapters you know, well, that those first sections that sort of really lays out this sort of economic context and, and his economic concerns um, and well, his political economy. Um, but then it's in the subsequent chapters where it's a bit more of the, I guess, poetic descriptions of um, life, which perhaps people, or at least the, the memes I see is sort of quoting more from those bits rather than the others. Um, so that's all just to sort of come back to your point of, um, yeah, that oppression, uh, that the, the excess is comes from the backs of others uh, and the luxury comes from, from that rather than uh, one's own yeah. work and doing. And I think that structural point, your, your, the structural feature of the book that you're pointing to is about this thing... Um, you were talking about, Jane, about the Sydney Morning Herald writers who seem so self-satisfied. I think that he thought all the things that appear in that first chapter about political economy. And he also thought human hearts do not turn by way of moralistic argumentation. That's not how we become able to do the things that are good for us in our society by being told by the writer in the Sydney Morning Herald that we should. That doesn't inspire us. It doesn't help us change. It doesn't transform our lives. What can help us transform our lives is a vision of the good, a, a vision of what a good life would look like. And so I think that that rhetorical insight is what 
it is a way to explain why the middle chapters of Walden are as they are. Like, what did he think it would accomplish to describe his life in the woods in this way? He, he thought he might show us a life that was worth transforming our society for. Um, and, and in that way, like shape persons into the kinds of people we need to do need to be in order to do the things we would have to do to, to build a more just society. Hmm. Yeah. So I think in relation to this idea as well, between, um, I guess the political economy and then to be able to think together about what a, a successful life is, um, and, and needing to have, I guess, the conditions for living before we can sort of think about um, the good life in that context and having those conditions for living guaranteed for all people in the community is something that comes out in this quote that I really like. By the words necessary of life, I mean whatever of all that man obtains by his own exertions has been from the first or from long use has become so important to human life that few, if any, whether from savageness or poverty or philosophy, ever attempt to do without it. To many creatures there is in this sense but one necessary of life, food. To the bison of the prairie it is a few inches of palatable grass with water to drink unless he seeks the shelter of the forest or the mountain's shadow. None of the brute creation requires more than food and shelter. The necessaries of life for man in this climate may, accurately enough, be distributed under the several heads of food, shelter, clothing, and fuel, for not till we have secured these are we prepared to entertain the true problems of life with freedom and a prospect of success. Yeah. I thought that was, sorry, yeah, just I thought that beautifully sort of sort of captures the sort of necessaries of life and then from there um, to be able to deal with these true problems of freedom. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons that I think that the libertarian interpreters like are just wrong because he thinks there are material prerequisites to freedom. You, you, you can't just be free. Mm. You have to live in a community, in some kind of society, that actually enables you to have a house mm. and clothes to wear and food to eat and a way to stay warm. And mm. when we live in a society, as we do, that in which people don't have those things, none of us is free. And I, think one I was the- thinking about this the other day, actually. So I was um, in Turek, driving through Turek yesterday and I saw this is one of the things about co-optation and the way people use quotations I saw a sign on a fence built a fence you know when they're doing construction so it's a new apartment building going up in Turek and they have a, a fence outside to hide the construction site and it has a quote from Thoreau it says the world is but a canvas to our imaginations. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and they're wow. building this this uh, apartment building in Turak. And, and I think, <clears throat> like, I think one of the questions, and this was 
in the, in among the questions that you were planning to ask me. So sorry if I'm preempting you, but um, it was the thing. It was the thing I was sort of because so so because we have a housing crisis in Australia, and because there are lots of people without a place to sleep. When I read that first chapter right now, that's all I think about. It's like he points out that the First Nations of the United States uh, provided shelter to all of their members. There was no one without a house in that society. And we call them savage, he pointed out. And in our society, people mortgage their lives to a house they can't afford if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that, that I think people are worried about in this kind of ascetic move that lots of environmentalists have been tempted to is that it's sort of individualizing and bourgeois and um, doesn't really help anyone anyway. And like that happens in a lot of people's lives, definitely, for sure. Um, but he thought that when we're doing those practices right, they bring us into some kind of solidarity with our communities, which is the basis for any actual politics. Um, so for example, I am not myself a public housing resident, but because I have volunteered in public housing programs, I ended up at a protest where I learned about the rental and housing union in Victoria, and now I have joined it. And maybe that union can help the people who live in those apartments in Turak and all the rest of us get what we need and get a like social housing policy, a public housing policy that will actually make it so that people will have a place to live and thus we are free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great. And I think, um, I think, yeah, preempts the question around uh, how Thoreau and um, these ideas um, have shaped and influenced your own practice and, and life. And I guess um, on that, particularly around sort of social and public housing, I think something that is depressing in the uh, recent election of the um, of Anthony Albanese as the uh, Prime Minister, um, <clears throat> new prime minister in Australia. I mean, it's certainly not depressing that the old one has gone, but in the the lead up to that, there was so much made of how he grew up in social and in public housing. And that was such a sort of talking point that he's gone from, you know, a rags to riches story in some senses. Um, But in a sense, not him individually, but the ladder's been pulled up from everyone else uh, in those situations now. And that, yes, we should celebrate that someone from public housing has been able to become the prime minister, but. Maybe only when we provide public housing for (laughs) the people who need it now. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So yeah, I've, I've uh, very much enjoyed both the conversation, but then also the research into uh, doing um, into Thoreau and, and coming, I guess, to a better understanding of that focus on the necess- necessities of life as a sort of precondition, and, and I think really does have some uh, have a lot of parallels with uh, the social determinants of health literatures in public health, and 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 they're shared. Well, I don't not throw shared, but 
you know, the social determinants of health coming out of a lot of Marx and Engels and um, that political milieu of the uh, mid uh, 19th century in um, Europe. Uh, and, and that unfortunately, I think a lot of, not all, but a lot of sort of public health has sort of lost that political dimension um, to it. And I see that in a similar way, what you've been trying to do with Thoreau is that, you know, it's not, um, uh, or that his connection between the asceticism and, and having that as a political act as well. Yeah, I think it's not a mystery why stories about asceticism depoliticize it. Mm. I think people with economic power are always trying to find ways to write resistance out of the story. Mm. And we do that when we when we think we can interpret literature outside of its economic context um, in the ways that has happened to Walden and and in lots of other contexts. I mean, I I have the view that um, this particular moment is part of a, a a much longer history in the Christian tradition of of. resistance to economic inequality that then gets written out of the story by people with wealth at stake. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, I think bringing in the Christian dimension and um, I mean, that's another... I guess, distinctive aspect of your work in terms of the religious, uh, Thoreau's sort of religious commitments or, or maybe not commitments, but influences um, and and the way that they can be written out of the story as well in terms of different communities um, that have used and been shaped by a religious tradition in this different cases, Christian, um, to push back against capitalism, environmentalism, oh, not push back against environmentalism, but motivate for environmental change, like even, you know, uh, Extinction Rebellion and those sorts of groups uh, having strong uh, Christian links in uh, the UK, um, but it doesn't suit the narrative of you know, more powerful actors who control the Christian narrative of what, you know, Christianity is supposed to be about, you know, family values and, you know, home and upbringing and all those sorts of things. Um, but I feel that if we get down into the sort of religious aspect, we'll be here for yeah, another sort of part. hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, but thank you very much for being part of the conversation today elder it's been a pleasure and uh, a lot to continue thinking about and talking about it's really uh great to get to talk to you and to think about the this to to un 
to realize that I had used well-being in this naive way and to have the chance to think about it as a kind of a critical category, one that we, um, whose history we should uncover. It was mm. really a pleasure. Mm, thank you. Might that be your next book, Elder? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not um, writing another Thoreau book, I don't think. 